Well, for those of you who are rule followers and you know who you are, Sue Gayo, we talked about this already on Thursday. <laughs> I'm going to begin right away with a fair warning that we have switched the last two S's in our BLESS series. I know, I know. We can get through this, you guys. It's going to be okay. One of the S's stands for serve with love, and the other one stands for share your story. And I mentioned during our announcements this morning that next week we are kicking off our third annual Project Blue Partnership, and so it made sense to spend that time next week talking about what it looks like to serve with love, which means that this week we are talking about sharing your story. We have actually talked quite a bit about the importance of story around here. In fact, in the past four years, we've done entire, two entire sermon series on the importance of story. In one of our series, we took a look at some different people in scripture whose stories included a profound interaction with Jesus. In the other series, we looked at how Jesus himself used story as the most prominent way of communicating with his followers. Jesus told stories that people understood to help them grasp something that they didn't really understand. What we often fail to remember is that God has called us to do the same thing, to use our stories, which people relate to and understand, to help them grasp the love of God, because they can see that in and through us. In both of the sermon series that we did, we had people from within our church share their own stories. And it's always such a meaningful thing to our community. Why is that? It's meaningful because personal stories reach us in a way that nothing else can. Stories engage our emotions and cause actual physical and chemical changes in our body as we listen to them. And the reason that I love that this is one of the categories in our BLESS series is because I think when we talk about the word evangelism, which this BLESS series is about, our minds go to a couple of different places, and we've talked a little bit about this already, that we have these negative images or connotations around the word evangelism. We think of corrupt TV preachers or weird Bible thumpers, right? Or we think of maybe the negative images that our culture sometimes has around evangelicals this, these days. We love Jesus, but maybe we don't want to be associated with all of that other stuff. But our unwillingness to live out God's call upon our lives is starting to have some serious consequences on the generations who have been watching us squirm around the word evangelism. Here's what I mean, and this absolutely breaks my heart. The Barna Group just released a brand new report called Reviving Evangelism. And in this report, they say that almost half of millennial Christians believe that evangelism is wrong. Not that it's difficult, not that it's weird, not that it's uncomfortable, but that evangelism is wrong in that we shouldn't be doing it at all. Now, do we need to change some of our ways? I'm certain of that. But that's not what they're talking about. They believe it is just simply wrong. Do you remember the passage from the book of Deuteronomy that's referred to as the Shema? 
It says, Hear, O Israel, our Lord, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It says, These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them on symbols, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We have to take a serious look at what we have impressed upon our children. When half of Christians between the ages of 23 and 37 think that sharing the good news of Jesus Christ is wrong. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. In Mark 16, Jesus himself says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Romans 1.16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. 2 Timothy 4.22 says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Matthew 5.14 says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that others might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. I could keep going. There are more. Evangelism literally means good news. It means good news. Yes, it is our call to help others know the good news of Christ. The question is, why isn't it our joy to do so? And how did we raise a generation of Christians who think that evangelism is wrong? How did we let this happen? One of the ways I believe is that we got so wrapped up in either not wanting to be associated with evangelicals or in thinking that we had to have all of the right things to say that we said nothing at all. We forget that so much of what Jesus did to help people understand was simply to tell stories. I don't want us to remove the word evangelical from our name. I want us to reclaim it for what it means. But even then, even if we have maybe retrained our brains to realize that evangelism can come simply through sharing our own stories of God at work, through helping people see how we have experienced God, even then, Oftentimes, we don't think that our story is worth sharing. Or maybe we don't think anyone will want to listen to it. Or for some of you, you feel like your story is too difficult to talk about. And I get that. I've done that in my own life. In fact, when it came time to preparing for this sermon, I thought that I would perhaps see if somebody else from the church who hasn't yet shared their story would be willing to do so, because in a society that longs for authentic connection, I think that sharing our stories is probably the best way for those who don't yet know Christ to experience him through us. 
but I didn't ask somebody from church to share their story for this morning. So then my next tactic was maybe I'd go online and I'd find a video clip of a really good story to share. I'd find a story online that I could read that would be meaningful to us. And it was literally as if I could feel God tapping me on the shoulder saying, "Um, excuse me, you have a story, you know. And I do. And it's time that I shared it. Because our relentlessly loving, redeeming, saving God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing. I say it often. And when I tell you that I have that phrase literally tattooed on my foot, I want you to know that they are not just cheap, empty words. With my own eyes, with my own life, I have seen God create beauty from brokenness. I have seen him restore total destruction. And from death, I have seen God bring life and freedom and hope and a future. I know that week after week, you hear all kinds of anecdotes about my life, but there's more to the story. And I knew that when I was ready, God would call upon me to share it. And so here we are. You see, a significant part of my story is that I am a survivor of sexual abuse. From the time that I was four years old until we moved away when I was nearly nine, I endured what no child should ever have to. Because God created our minds in incredible ways, I was able to survive my growing up years not really remembering what had happened to me. It allowed me to create for myself the story of my life that I wished had been true. And I believed it, sort of. When I came to faith as a teenager and first learned that sharing our stories is something that church people did, the story that I shared was a happy one because I either couldn't or didn't want to remember the real one. I didn't face the truth of what had happened to me until well into my adult years. And when I finally did, it was the most difficult thing I have ever done. I knew that it was something that I couldn't process on my own And so I asked for the help that I needed from gifted therapists along the way. I was fortunate to have some amazing, amazingly loving people and support around me as I began to face the lies and destruction that abuse caused in my life. But it was a deeply painful journey. So you know me and my love for psychology and statistics, and so I thought at this point that I'd help you understand some of the statistics around what childhood sexual abuse and trauma can do to a person, but God impressed upon my heart that this is not everyone else's story, this is mine, and ultimately that it is his, and all of the stats and all of the world will not help you understand what God has done in me. Childhood abuse shaped me in ways that I didn't even realize until God and I began the work of deconstructing my life. I'm a teeny tiny bit of a control freak, as you well know, and so you can imagine how terrifying this destruction was for me. Scripture says that God is close to the brokenhearted, and to say that I was brokenhearted is an understatement of epic proportions. I wasn't just brokenhearted, I was destroyed. As children, we begin to tell ourselves any variety of messages about who we are. The messages form in us at an early age and they are either confirmed or altered by life experiences. 
Despite my inability to face the reality of my abuse for such a long time, the messages that I had been repeating to myself about who I was were loud and clear and on repeat. Broken. Damaged. Unwanted. Unlovable. Irreparable. And the shame. Any of you who have endured abuse know that the shame is just beyond words. We know that it makes no logical sense that somebody who experienced childhood abuse should feel shame, but unfortunately, logic rarely wins out and shame often overwhelms. And so these awful, destructive messages that I believed about myself, lies that they were, shaped so much of my life. They impacted everything about me and everything about the ways in which I engaged the world and the people within it. I was a ferociously angry adolescent, particularly in my middle school years. You could probably set a clock to the patterns of my anger. Just ask my two older brothers who would count as I stormed up the stairs again. One, two, three. And they always knew that by the time they got to three that I would have slammed my door so hard that the house would shake. More than once, my dad had to reattach the doorframe of my bedroom. I remember in the middle of a fit of teenage rage, my mom looking at me with the most quizzical look on her face and she said, why are you so angry? And we both knew that she wasn't talking about just that moment. The question hung in the air as I stormed off, a question that was left unaddressed for 20 years more. Facing what had happened to me was no easy task. Learning to identify the lies that I believed about myself brought profound sadness. Facing my lifelong companions of shame and anger and grief made for some brutally difficult days. Having to go through the unavoidable question, where, is, where was God then, is an intense journey of faith. And where was God then? I didn't come to faith until five or six years after the abuse ended, but I am confident, I am confident that our lo- loving God never left me. I believe with all that I am that God weeps for the brokenness and evil in this world. John 10.10 says that the evil one, the thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But God says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. The Passion Translation says, but I have come to give you everything in abundance, more than you would expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. We were not created for death. We were not created just to get by. We were not created to silently endure evil or to believe lies about who we are. And so if you are stuck in any of those places in your own life, I want you to know that you don't have to stay there. No matter how old you are, a different life is not only possible, it is God's heart for you. I'm telling you my story because I want you to know that when I speak of a God who can and does and will and loves to bring wholeness out of brokenness and beauty out of ashes, 
I saw him do it firsthand with my own life. And so as it says in the psalm that Kayla read for us earlier, come and hear, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what God has done for me. The abuse haunted me in ways I didn't even realize. I had nightmares multiple times a week for my whole entire life. I had days where all I could do was cry from the pain of realizing everything that had been stolen from me. And even in my healing, the sadness is never far away. I had other days where the pain of what I endured was too great even for tears. Many days I spent in a bit of a disconnected daze, struggling just to understand and accept that this was my life. I looked at the shattered pieces of my life, unsure of how I could ever be anything but broken. And into that grief and brokenness, God spoke to me the words of a really strange verse. It's from the book of Joel, where the prophet Joel only really spoke about two things, one of which was a terrible plague of locusts that not only destroyed everything that Judah had, but also their hope of ever having a future. And so into my grief and brokenness, God spoke to me the words of Joel 2.25. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. I know that it didn't mean that what had happened to me would be forgotten. It wasn't to dismiss my pain, but to offer hope that the darkness of evil would never win out in my life. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, and he began to do so by starting with my identity. When I cried before the Lord and told him who I thought I was, he spoke different words over me until I started to believe for myself. But I am... I am damaged and broken, I said. And Jesus said, that is a lie. When I told you, this is my body, broken for you, my body broke so that yours could be made whole. Do not live in brokenness when I have created you for wholeness. But I am unloved and unwanted, I said. And God told me those are lies as well, for I am his chosen daughter, holy and fiercely and relentlessly loved. But I am irreparable, I said. And God said, that too is a lie. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he or she has become an entirely new creation, and all that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 wasn't just written for me, though. That promise is true for all who call upon the name of Jesus. There is nothing, nothing that God cannot make new again. There is nothing in your life that God cannot redeem, transform, and make new. And you should know that like everyone else, I have my days where I forget where I trade all of the truth of Christ for the lies that were comfortable for me for so long. I have days where I have to ask God to free me from the sadness that can overwhelm. 
the enemy will always try to get us where we are most vulnerable, and so it is a daily prayer to ask God that his voice would be louder than all of the other ones. As you can well imagine, there is more to my story, and while we don't have time for me to tell you all that God has done in healing me, I know that sharing this morning opens up some doors for all kinds of conversations down the road, but for this morning, there's one last piece that I want to talk about, and that is freedom. Galatians 5.1 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. I don't think I even have words that adequately explain to you how my past held me in slavery and captivity. But I am guessing that many of you can relate. Because whatever your story is, I think a lot of us live this life burdened by the yoke of slavery that is our past. Whether that was something that you did or something that was done to you, it doesn't matter. Being held captive by our past, whether our past was yesterday or 35 years ago, is not what God intended for us. The first person I ever told about my abuse was a therapist, and I kid you not, it took me an entire session to get out four words. I was sexually abused. It took me an hour to utter those four words. There is nothing that the enemy loves more than shame and secrecy because there is nothing else in all of the world that will hold us captive like our secrets will. So as my secrets found a voice and as I offered them to God, there was a major shift in power. There's this great verse in Matthew 22 where Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees and he says to them, and I admittedly hear this with a little bit of a bite that I don't know if it was intended with, but he says to the Sadducees, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And I believe that that is what God says into our secrecy, and into the lies that hold so much power over us. Our mistake is that we don't know the power of God. Because for as much power as we think that our past has over us, it cannot touch the power of the living God which can overcome our past and which has overcome this life, which has overcome death itself. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom And so when I invited the Spirit into my story, with each new step I found greater freedom. When I initially broke the shroud of secrecy around my abuse, I found freedom. When I was able to tell a couple of close friends, I found even more freedom. One of the greatest gifts of freedom came from telling my parents which for the longest time I thought I would never do to save us all the pain. But it was more secrecy that was holding me captive, holding me back from sharing my story with others. But when offered to God, that secrecy was transformed because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so now I share with you, guess what? More freedom. But the question remains, of all the series in all of the world, why am I sharing my story during a series on evangelism? Because I want us to get away from thinking that evangelism is about forcing our set of beliefs onto someone who doesn't want to hear it. 
It isn't about using scripture as a weapon in debates or conversations. Friends, God has put very real people with very real pain into your lives. While I know that there are all kinds of things in this world that are wonderful and full of joy, the reality is that this world is so messed up. And if we can be really honest, there are people around us who are broken and hurting and lost and hopeless. People who have endured great trauma. People who are battling addiction, whose marriages are a mess, whose families are torn apart. We know people who can't make ends meet, who are drowning in debt, who have no hope of life ever being different than what it is. People who feel that their life will never be more than the brokenness or the shame that hold them captive. People who feel unloved, unwelcomed, unheard. People who don't know what they are doing here or if they matter at all. And I'm standing here today because I know that through Jesus Christ, I am not the sum total of my abuse any more than you are the sum total of your worst day or your most painful experience. And I want the people around me to know the same thing for their lives. Abuse is part of my story, but not the whole story, because the whole of my story is folded into the story of God. Abuse doesn't get to hold power or claim over my life because my life doesn't belong to abuse, it belongs to God. I want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people around me because in his name alone, hope and healing are found and I am desperate for people around me to know the love and hope of Jesus Christ because people don't have to go through this life without hope and they certainly don't have to go through this life alone. God did not stop me from experiencing pain. But he did transform it. And he continues to transform it. And I believe that God will take whatever we are willing to give him and he will make something brand new from it. Author Shauna Nyquist said that when we tell the truth about our lives, the broken parts, the secret parts, the beautiful parts, then the gospel comes to life an actual story of redemption. And that is what God is creating in me, an actual story of redemption. A living, breathing, right-in-front-of-you story of redemption. And as much as I'd like to think I am, I'm not that special. When I'm telling you that God, what God has done in me, I am confident that he desires to do in you the same thing, any of you who are imprisoned or held captive by difficult or painful things in this life because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so what about you? From what do you need to be freed? What of your story have you allowed to hold you captive? Where in your life is there secrecy that the enemy can feed off of? What are you just so tired of carrying around day after day after day? Where have you lost hope that life can be different? What in your life are you desperate to see renewed, transformed, 
or altogether redeemed. My dear friends, please hear me when I say, don't wait another day. For it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I believe it to be true that I am a walking miracle. That I am living, breathing evidence of what you do with lives, what you do with broken lives. God, I don't believe that there is anything you love more in this whole world than looking at something that is broken and making it whole. That is your love for us. And so, God, I pray for these dear friends of mine, for anyone who feels trapped, for anyone who feels like they're being held hostage by their own life, for anyone stuck in painful places or past issues, for anyone stuck in current situations, God, that have taken control of them, I pray, Lord, and declare, Lord, that this would be a new day. We come here week after week, Lord, and we hear about who you are and we hear about what you have done. And so many of us in this room have heard the story week after week after week for the entirety of our lives. But we don't know. We don't really know or feel deep down to our core that when you died to set us free, you meant me. You meant our specific name. And so, God, may anybody who needs to hear their name spoken from your lips this morning hear their name, that you have come to set them free. And so this morning, God, for who you are and for what you have done, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.